All right, Dylan Bowman, thank you for welcoming me into your home and welcome to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Mario, it's great to have you here in my home and thanks for having me. So we are less than a week removed at this point from the Ultra Trail Mount Fuji, which you came away with the victory from. How are you feeling? I'm totally satisfied. I honestly think this race uh, was probably the greatest or the best of my career. And that has left me just totally happy. And um, obviously, I'm still very sore and not uh, anticipating doing much exercising or training anytime soon. Um, But psychologically, emotionally, everything, I'm just super, super happy. And for what reasons would you consider it the best race of your career? A lot of different things. Number one, a hundred miles is just so hard. And it, as, as a result of it being such a long event, you have such a, a long period of time to screw things up. And for me in this race, it was really the first hundred miler that I had done that was really void of any serious drama. I mean, I had a few moments where I was low on energy and, um, suffered a little bit, but we're talking maybe 15, 20 minutes at a time. And that only happened a couple of times throughout the entire 19 hour race. So just self-management, I think was, um, the, what resulted in, in this being probably my best race ever. And then also just, um, my race strategy, the fact that I never panicked even when the gap continued to grow. And then um, at the end of the race that I, I had the courage and, and energy to, to really go for it when I had an opportunity. And even though the, the gap was still fairly large, that I, I didn't settle for second place and I, I fought for the win. Uh, I made it and uh, it was uh, really, really special. So for those of you listening who don't know, Dylan past the race leader Pau Capel from Spain in the last 5k of a hundred mile race around Mount Fuji. And that was somewhere, I'm guessing like right around 19 hour mark, right after the 19 hour mark. Take me back a little bit to like say 1830 into the race. What's going through your mind at that time? And what are you thinking about as you're, as you're sitting in second place, you're moving pretty well. I'm sure you're getting updates from folks at the aid stations on how far ahead how is do you think you still have a chance at that point or are you just happy with the effort that you're putting out and content to just keep it to the finish line regardless of whether you finish second first or wherever yeah i mean i was definitely motivated the whole way to try and catch him um at about 1830 i would guess that i was somewhere near the final aid station and at that aid station my crew, a good friend of mine named Mile Backhausen, an Australian guy who's crewed for me a number of times, was there. And at that point, Pow had left eight minutes before I arrived. And that was the smallest gap that we had had all day. And at that point, I knew that I, I had to at least give it a really solid effort because if I didn't, I would really uh, regret it. And in addition, Madge, as we call him, told me that Pow was not looking particularly good and had taken a bit of time at the aid station and wasn't necessarily moving very quickly. And that 
really motivated me. And so uh, I did a quick change in the aid station, even though I had arrived when uh, with about an eight minute gap, I left with about a 10 minute gap because I spent about two minutes changing my clothes and refueling. And yeah, from there, you have a 2200 foot climb, uh, the last climb of the race. And under most circumstances, it'd be a climb where you hike every step. And I managed to run almost the entire thing after, you know, 95, 98 miles of racing. And I can only attribute that to solid pacing and just sheer motivation to, to catch him. And I caught him right at the top of the, of the climb. And, um, he had been running the downhills better than me all day. And so at that point I was a little nervous that he'd be able to, you know, get another gap on the downhill and we would have a sprint finish around the lake. Luckily it wasn't quite that close, but that's sort of how it played out at the end. Take me to that moment when you first saw him come into view there at 95, 98 miles, whenever it was, and what you were feeling at that time. Yeah, so about halfway up the climb, um, I got a report from somebody uh, on the trail that the the gap was four minutes. And so I thought, okay, well, I've halved his lead in half the climb, so I'm going to probably catch him right at the top. And that's exactly what happened. So right at the top, it sort of is a gent gentle downslope traverse before it gets to a, the final steep descent. And I caught a glimpse of him on that little gentle downhill. And I saw that there was a Japanese uh, videographer guy filming him with a GoPro running just behind him. And... I basically at that point just hit the gas as, as hard as I could. And as I approached the, the guy with the GoPro stepped aside, but Pow didn't realize it. So I basically re replaced the guy with the, with the GoPro. So then I had to sort of call Pow's name and let him know that I was there and sort of jump around him. And he tried to hang with me for what seemed like, I don't know, maybe 20 or 30 seconds. And uh, luckily I just had a little bit more juice than him and he, uh, he eventually was out of sight and, uh, I just continued to hammer all the way to the finish. Were there any words exchanged in that moment? <clears throat> yeah. So I, again, I called his name. I said, Hey pal. And he turned and looked and he just goes, Oh shit. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I, I basically, I just said, you know, Hey man, I'm really sorry. He ran a great race and hit the gas, you know? And again, I didn't know if he was going to try and come with me. So I, I wanted to put him away as quickly as I could. Um, the gap was, you know, at the finish line, two or three minutes and, and I was there waiting for him and we had a big hug and we could talk about it a little bit more, but yeah, the, the, the interaction on the trail was very, very short. He just said, Oh shit. And I said, man, I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, Let's talk about moments like that for a minute. We've seen ultra races, not necessarily your own, where some competitors will cross holding hands after they've battled for so long. And in your case, I mean, you guys really didn't see each other much of the day. He was ahead of you the entire time. What are your thoughts on just the competitiveness at the end of an ultra race like that and being able to make that definitive of a move and say, no, I'm, I'm here to win this? Yeah, I mean... I, there are certain circumstances where it is sort of a heartwarming story to see people cross the line holding hands, but usually it sort of irks me a little bit and that I, I would love to, as a fan of the sport, see 
those sorts of battles come to a, a competitive conclusion. And you're right. I mean, even though the race was so close, like it was such a good race, we didn't run together at all for all 19 hours of the race. Pow was ahead of me the whole time. And um, also, you know, the um, Pow and I have only raced each other twice. And at UTMB, our, the roles were exactly opposite. Uh, at about mile 98 of UTMB, Pow came past me. Um, again, of course, it wasn't for first and second place. It was for sixth and seventh. And we finished just a few minutes apart there as well. And so I was sort of thinking about that and, um, you know, knowing how hard I had sort of like um, worked to catch up to him and um, how strong I was still feeling. Um you know, it was, it was a good feeling to be able to, to compete all the way to the end. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, if, uh, we would have crossed holding hands, it would have been uh, a really nice, uh, sort of show of sportsmanship. But I think, um, we were able to, to sort of do that, um, in our own way, even though, uh, the result wasn't exactly a tie and, uh, even though it wasn't, it's about as close as it possibly could be. And, and Powell on any other day could have won the race and, uh, he should be super proud of his effort. As you said, you waited for him at the finish line for two or three minutes till he came across. And then I saw the video where you guys embraced what words were spoken after the race, whether it was in that first hour after you guys both finished, or maybe even the next day as you're trading war stories about it. Yeah. I mean, again, I just felt really bad for him, you know, like, he had run just an amazing, courageous race. And I was skeptical the entire time as to whether or not I would run out of real estate. Like I knew it was going to be very close. And the whole day, I mean, I was just waiting for him to to break basically. And he never really did, you know, even though he started to slow at the end, it wasn't like a catastrophic failure. You know, it was just normal slowing that you would see from somebody who happened to be the rabbit the entire race. And so at the finish line, all I could do was just, you know, voice my appreciation for the race that he had run and the fact that we had pushed each other to be our best. You know, I think he knew I was coming. Um, I don't think he thought I was coming that quickly, but uh, he certainly felt my presence and I hope I helped him run a better race because he certainly got the best out of me. And so that's what I, I told him at the finish line. Just like, I'm really sorry, man. You ran an amazing race. Um, and you know, congratulations. I did what I had to do. Yeah. You've had an amazing year thus far. You won Tarawera, uh, you won Mount Fuji. What do you attribute that to? Um, I think obviously I have a lot of experience, you know, I've been doing this now for eight or nine years and I think there's a lot to be said for that. And I've also always been a student of the sport and always like tried to set myself up for success. You know, I'm not the most talented guy. I'm not a Jim Walmsley who can just show up at any race in the world and win on, on sheer talent. Like I have to 
be very meticulous in the races that I choose in the training that I do, um, and train specifically and give myself the best opportunity because that's, uh, you know, I have to, in order to give myself a chance to win, you know, I have some talent, but I have to focus a lot more on, um, you know, controlling the other variables and giving myself the best shot. And I think I've done that this year. You know, um, I started out at Tarawera, where a race I've already done in the past, where I have experience and good feelings, a race that has terrain similar to where I live and train here in Marin County. Um, and then, in between Tarawera and UTMF, I did an FKT project with Red Bull on the Lost Coast. And so between Tarawera and that Lost Coast project, I did basically the two major training runs that I felt like I needed to do to lead up to Fuji. So um, using those two sort of FKT and race type efforts as the main cornerstones of my training for this 100-mile race, I think was a really, really intelligent thing for me to do, knowing myself as I do now as an athlete of somebody who doesn't love doing monster volume and stringing together these heroic training blocks. I'm much, much better when I have some training, a lot of rest, and then for the few weeks before the race in the case of Mount Fuji, I only trained really, really specifically for four weeks. Of course, I have a lot of experience and I had those two major long runs under my belt already this year. So I didn't need to run. I didn't need an eight week long or 16 week long trading block with several 30, 40 mile runs. And so working with my coach, Jason Coop, and, um, it, in, in the process, I actually, told him to back off the volume a little bit. And, um, as a result, like I just, I felt like I had the strength and endurance I needed for a hundred mile race while still having the freshness, um, that I need in order to be, to be mentally motivated to, to go to those places that you need to late in a hundred mile race. And oftentimes when I'm in the longest training blocks or, you know, at when, when I'm theoretically at my fittest, I lack the motivation to really bury myself. And in hundred mile racing, I just think that's so important. Like you have to be so excited for the vision quest. And for me, before this race, I was just ready to, to put myself out there. And, um, even though like my training block wasn't heroic by any means, it was exactly what I needed. And so that's why I think this, this year started off really, really well for me. And, uh, now I'm looking forward to some rest before getting back into it this summer. Let's touch on that a little bit. What do your next couple of weeks look like? And then what do the next few months look like in terms of how you're structuring your recovery, your training, and ultimately your next race, if that's something you can talk about at this point? Yeah, sure. So, uh, we're what, like four or five days removed from Mount Fuji now. Um, I have done absolutely nothing that would resemble exercise or really even activity since then. Uh, I'll probably take a full two weeks almost completely off. Um, at which point I'll get back into some easy jogging, maybe some easy spinning on my bike. Um, and really, uh, as I mentioned, I will really lean on 
rest for a long period of time. You know, I don't anticipate getting back into training for maybe even two months. And of course, I'll be somewhat active. Uh, what I mean by training is like actually doing workouts, building week by week. And uh, that won't come until probably this coming summer. So the next race that I have on the docket is TDS as part of the the UTMB uh, festival. Um, and all to get pr- prepared for that, I'm going to go back out to Colorado like I did before UTMB last year in order to train specifically. Because again, for me, I have to give myself the best chance to succeed. And um, in order to do that, I think it's just super important to train specifically for the terrain that, that you're going to face. And of course, TDS is a mountain race and I live here in the Bay Area. So go back home to Colorado and uh, march around in the mountains for, you know, six or seven weeks before that one. That seemed to work out pretty well for you last summer at UTMB on the whole. There's a lot in that last answer that I want to unpack. And the first thing I want to touch on is just the recovery aspect of what you're doing post 100 miler and what I see a lot of other ultra runners doing post 100 miler, 100k, long race in general. I feel like there's a tendency amongst elites and age groupers alike to get back into things almost too quickly. And for a while, it seems like these athletes are invincible and they're pulling off weeks of incredible training and then great race after great race. And then inevitably, it seems like they almost end up in a hole. And the other thing you had touched on is you've been at this eight or nine years now and are still improving, arguably, at ultra distance races, despite your experience level and have, I mean, I can't really think of anything that's really kept you out for all that long. Like just how important is that in general to longevity as an athlete, but also to continually improving your performances over the long term? Yeah. So this is something that I think a lot about. And as somebody who is a veteran of the sport, um, it is, I think, incredibly important to emphasize longevity, at least for me, you know, I'm the type of athlete where I would love to be in the sport, you know, competing until I'm 40 or potentially beyond. And I started in ultra running when I was 23 years old. And luckily I I wasn't a runner prior to that. And so I still feel like I have a lot of tread left on my tires because I I didn't run a ton as uh, a kid or into my teenage and college years. Um, but again, I, I always have really enjoyed resting. And I think it's just so important. And I look at guys like Ian Sharman and Jeff Browning, who've been in the game as long or longer than I have, and who have really displayed a lot of consistency and longevity. And that's exactly what I want to uh, also kind of mirror in my own career. And one of the things that struck me at the end of 2017 that I thought was really interesting is I looked back at my, all my training on Strava over the last four years, the four years that I had been on Strava and unbeknownst to me every year I was within like 50 miles of the same distance each year. So roughly 3,500 miles or so, give or take 50 miles. And I think, I I don't know what to attribute that to. I don't know if it's 
just like an internal governor that I feel like I have in that I never am going to be a person who's doing 4,500, 5,000 miles a year. Um, not only because I don't think it would help me with longevity, but I think it would severely compromise the enjoyment I have for the sport. And I, again, as I just said, for a lot of these races, at least for me, the key limiting factor to success is oftentimes how excited I am to bury myself. And I've just found that uh, when I emphasize the rest and lean on my experience, that I can get as fit as I'm going to get in six, eight weeks of training. And there's really no need for me to continue to bang my head against a wall for 12 or 16 weeks, even for the most important races. And I think that's something that a lot of people have to learn for themselves. And I'm really happy that, that I have because yeah, it is very easy to jump at all these really cool opportunities that we have in the sport now. And, um, I think it's just important to set yourself up, uh, for success by picking races where you think you can do well. And, sort of designing a calendar for yourself and sticking to it and then um, training specifically for the races and not hesitating or being afraid to rest uh, in between because um, it is a long season and there are so many opportunities and um, eventually you I mean, everybody's going to have challenges and bad races and, and everything, but I'm a firm believer in the fact that you can minimize that stuff just by controlling your emotions and by controlling the volume of your training. And so that's what I just try and do. You know, I, I really just try and rest a lot. It's not complicated. So I think it's a really interesting bit about your last four years of annual volume being so consistent within 50 miles of one another at more or less 3,500 miles a year. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think that correlates pretty closely with you beginning to work with your coach, Jason Coop, who has a handle on your training and is helping guide you along the way. And he was your first coach in ultra running, despite the fact that you'd already been in it for four or five years uh, when you started working together. How important has that been relationship been to your development these last four or five years and helped you take it from a high level to an even higher level? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think, the number one contributing factor to my improvement over the course of the last four or five years is working with Jason Coop. And in the beginning, when we started working together, it was the first time I'd ever worked with a coach. Again, I was never a runner growing up. And so I followed the training program that he put in training peaks to the T every single day. You know, I did exactly what was in there, no matter how I was feeling, no matter what I had going on with my life. I just did exactly what he told me. And it's really interesting now to see how our relationship has evolved and how much more empowered I feel in making decisions and how much more confident I am in making decisions for myself. And it's really allowed us to have a much more successful and, and mature relationship because um, 
like just as an example, before UTMF, we had a long weekend plan where I was going to do a medium long run on Friday with some intensity and then back to back five hour runs on Saturday and Sunday. And I was just not feeling it, you know, and I told him like, Hey, I, I don't feel like I need two of these five hour runs right now. You know, I did the lost coast, which was 11 hours. I did Terrawero, which was eight and a half hours. And, um, and basically just voiced my confidence in the fact that I already had that, you know, I already had that, uh, sort of endurance thing kind of dialed. And again, pushing that button too many times would leave me in a place where I would just not be excited to push that button again on race day. And so we adjusted it and we cut one of those five hour runs out. And instead I did a medium long run with intensity on Saturday and a five hour run on Sunday. And on Friday I had like a recovery day and sure enough, the next week I ran my second fastest time ever on Mount Tam. I had a ton of confidence. I was feeling super fit and also like just excited and fresh. So it's a really good example, I think, of how our relation is, relationship has evolved, you know, like not to say that had I done that five hour run, I wouldn't have run Mount Fuji, but having the confidence in myself to know when to say when and when to know you have done the work that you feel you need to do in order to be confident going into race day. And yeah, looking back at it, we both understand that that was the right decision. And, um, I think that's a testament to good coaching, you know, and now that he has gotten to know me a lot better, you know, he knows when I need to just unplug and not look at training peaks at all. And he knows like sometimes he'll put workouts up on training peaks and I just won't look for, you know, a couple weeks at a time and I'll just do what I want to do. And I need that. And he also knows that at the same time, when it's time to buckle down, like I'll buckle down and I'll work as hard as the next guy, you know? Um, and, uh, so yeah, it's been an incredible relationship, you know, Coop's become a really good friend. He came to our wedding and he's a, he's just, uh, you know, a really solid guy who, uh, has given me a ton and I just can't thank him enough. At this point of your relationship with him, and I don't want this to come off as a, as a disrespectful question at all, but what do you need a coach for? five years in where, you know, you have an understanding of what you need to do. You have a lot of autonomy in regard to, you know, your, your schedule and and what you do. Like, how does he still continue to help you at this point of your relationship? He helps me in a lot of different ways. You know, even though I'm no longer in the, in the place where I follow exactly what he says at all times, he's still an incredibly important sounding board for me. Um, somebody who I can talk to about, you know, race strategy and nutrition and, uh, you know, just like the, to, to, I don't know, just have like a bit of leadership and, and guidance, you know, I think everybody can use that and to, to complain to every once in a while and, and, uh, to, you know, to, yeah, voice my concern to like when I feel like my career's crumbling around me and like, I'm never going to have a good race again. And, uh, he's always been, you know, happy to listen and happy to talk me off the ledge. And even though, you know, um, 
I feel like I, I don't, I hope I, I don't cause as much work for him as I used to. Uh, I think he understands, you know, how valuable he is to me. And, you know, even just right before the races, getting calls and, and talking about how I'm going to approach things and nutrition. And then after the race to, to talk about how it went, where we can improve. I mean, we've, we've already identified things to improve after Mount Fuji and, uh, yeah. So I'm just somebody who's always responded really well to coaching going back to when I was, you know, playing lacrosse and before, and I've always got along really well with my coaches and valued their, their input. And they've always been really important people in my lives and in my life. And, and Coop is no different. So what can you improve upon coming off of Mount Fuji? <laughs> well, this is actually interesting. It'll, it'll tie into, uh, you as well and your coaching clients, but um, so at Mount Fuji, much like at UTMB, for those uh, of you out there, I'm sitting here wondering where he's going. With <laughs> no. So at, at, much like at UTMB where I, I seem to just like be really, really strong on the climbs and then lose a bunch of time on descents, like too much time on the descents. And, uh, as you know, at UTMB, I ran with your uh, disciple, Tim Tollefson, for, for many, many hours of the race. And we would sort of yo-yo where I was a little bit stronger on the climbs and he was much stronger on the downhills. And then late in the race, um, right when I had finally nearly caught back up to him, uh, we had a long downhill and he managed to put like eight minutes on me in like a four mile downhill somehow. And it was just like unacceptable amounts of time to give away. Similar things happen at UTMF where I was really cutting the gap on the climbs and then losing it on the descents. So that's to answer your question, a, a place where I definitely know I need, need to improve how much of that climbing and descending game is zero sum. I'm not sure, you know, if I start running the downhills harder during the races, I might lose some of that uphill power that I seem to have. Um, but I think at least working on just being more comfortable going downhill, uh, particularly on the really long ones with some technicality, I just seem to lose a lot of time, like too much time. Um, where if I, I if I feel like feel like I can limit that damage a little bit and, and still be a good climber, uh, late in these hundred mile races. And how do you go about doing that? If we had to delve into the specifics, is it specific types of workouts on that terrain that will allow you to get more comfortable on the downhills or just whenever you're out running saying, all right, I'm just going to let loose here on the downhills and take a couple risks. Like what does that look like for you in terms of improving that area of your running and racing? Yeah, it's a good question. And Coop and I haven't talked about specifics of how we can approach this yet, but yeah, I, I don't think it's rocket science, right? In order to, to improve at anything, you have to practice. And so it'll probably just entail seeking out long downhills while I'm in Aspen this summer and, and trying to run those fast. And if that means maybe I do fewer intervals going uphill, which I usually do, usually I do most of my intensity going uphill, um, then maybe that's a sacrifice that I have to make. But uh, at this point, I think that is probably time and effort well spent, uh, just given how the last few races have played out. You've mentioned your recent 
FKT on the Lost Coast that you did in conjunction with Red Bull, who's one of your sponsors, and how that was a one of your key long days before UTMF. When did the idea for tackling that FKT come into the picture, and what was that conversation like with Coach Coop about integrating it into the build-up to UTMF? So the idea came many years ago. I mean, when I heard about the route when Ricky Gates and Lior Pantelot did it back in 2014, I knew that it was a route that I really would would like to do. And when Red Bull came to me and said, we want to do a project, do you have any ideas? It was the perfect option. Number one, you know, it's close to home. And for me, I spend a lot of the year on the road. I do a ton of traveling and it's nice to be able to, to do big projects and to do some exploring closer to home in places where it's equally as beautiful as any place I'll ever visit abroad. Um, yet it doesn't require as much travel and logistics and all that stuff. So it was, it just made a lot of sense to do that this spring and timing wise, it was perfect, right? I did Tarawera at the beginning of February and then did the lost coast at the beginning of March. I think I had about four weeks in between those two efforts and in between I did very little. I mean, I was running, but I'd have to look back. I wasn't doing more than maybe 40 or 50 miles a week, I would think, in between those two efforts. And, um, you know, I, I obviously fully understood that I had the experience and fitness to go the distance, even if I wasn't, like, really at the cutting edge of what I would consider, like, race-type readiness. But, of course, that wasn't the goal for the Lost Coast. It was to go break the record but have a have an awesome time and to get a long day in on my feet. And, uh, you know, for me, again, because I've done so many of these races, I don't need a huge dose of mega long runs to get me ready for 100-mile races. I'd need a couple at the right time. And that's really all I need. And so I did the Lost Coast about, I think it was six weeks out from UTMF. Took a week to kind of recover after that effort. And then basically just went full gas for four weeks. And that was what the preparation looked like. And Coop, um, sort of worked with me on both the preparation and the recovery. Um, but just the fitness you get alone from one massive long run, people underestimate, I think. And if you do too many of them, I think that's what gets people in trouble. Um, so I've learned that and I'm lucky to have learned that. Uh, and I've been able to, you know, stay in the sport for longer than a lot of guys. And I attribute that to, my ability to, to back off when I need and to really push when I need. Uh, so that's how the Lost Coast fit into, into UTMF. It was a critical, critical part of the preparation. And a lot of times I think that's a good way to approach it, using races or race-type efforts to build towards your goal. Are there any other FKTs out there that interest you or get you excited to pursue in the coming years? I mean, there's a million. I mean, I would love to do the Wonderland Trail. I would love to do um, the uh, Timberline Trail around Mount Hood, uh, which I've done but haven't really 
you know, giving it a proper race type effort. Um, I'd love to do, I mean, I'd love to do the John Muir trail. I'm not sure that record's ever going to be touchable again after Francois. Um, those are just a few that, that come to mind. Uh, at this point in my career though, I, I'm certainly much more focused on competing and, uh, I think that'll be the case hopefully for at least another handful of years while I still have a little bit of youth on my side, <laughs> relatively speaking. Um, and then, yeah, hopefully, uh, further off in the future, uh, maybe I'll shift emphasis a little bit and do more of those adventure type projects. You've talked about how important it is for you to get to the starting line of a race, just really excited to go to the well and bury yourself. And I know just from knowing you in, I think it was probably two years ago, you had a rough stretch for a while where you DNF'd at Western States. Um, you just had for yourself a bad patch of races and ended up taking a bit of time off. How did that period of, you know, I'll just say disappointing performances and experiences catapult you to future success? And what did you learn during that time? Yeah. I mean, I think a certain amount of disappointment is inevitable. And in 2015, when I DNF'd from Western States, I still look back at that as one of my best years ever. You know, I was able to win Tarawera and Ultra Trail Australia that year. And then after Western States, I was super proud of the way that I even though I was really, really upset with how that all went and I learned so much from it, um, I was able to bounce back and finish second at TNF 50 at the end of the year. But, you know, to your question about like how you use that to go forward, it's just a perfect example of what I was just talking about, about my relationship with Coop and how our relationship has evolved and how we've learned how each other operates and things like that. But after ultra trail Australia that year in 2015, which was up to that point, my best, the best race of my career and a race that I absolutely had to go to the bottom of the well to win. Um, it was only six weeks before Western States and I didn't fully communicate or appreciate the level of stress that it caused or the level of exhaustion and fatigue that it caused. And two weeks later, I did a seven hour run on the Western States course, two weeks after running a hundred Ks in Australia. And after that, I was just spent and I knew it internally, even though I never communicated it well to Coop. I never told him, Hey, like, this is not feeling good anymore. I'm not excited. Uh, everything feels hard. I can't get out the door. Instead, I put my head down and I thought this is what it's supposed to feel like. You know, Western States training is supposed to suck. It's supposed to be really hard. And, you know, looking back, I, I totally would have cut that. Today's Dylan would have totally cut that seven hour run out of my training program, just knowing how I operate best and where I race best. And so it's the exact same thing that I just said we did before UTMF, where I said, I don't need both of these five hour runs. You know, 
if I could go back in time, I would have said, I don't need the seven hour run. You know, maybe I do four, maybe five hours, but I don't need seven because I just did hundred K's as hard as I could. And so that's, I think the perfect example of how you can use really disappointing circumstances to learn and to become a better athlete because it is like still looking back like I just I know I left my race out there and if I would have done if I would have focused on recovery like I do now and focused on rest and leaned on my experience at that point I know I could have bounced back even though it was only six weeks and had at least a a decent race at Western States that year. And, uh, unfortunately the circumstances were that, uh, you know, I did exactly as was written on my training program, no matter how I was feeling. And that was an immature thing for me to do. And looking back, I wish I would have told my coach because there was nothing to indicate to him that I was struggling. Um, so yeah, my, my advice would be to, you know, get professional guidance from a good coach and then don't be afraid to tell them how you feel because there, there's a certain, there's a lot of science to it, but there's also a lot of art to it. And there's a lot of interpersonal communication to it. And, uh, you know, we've improved at all those things over the course of the last five years. How much do you still think about Western States and how important is it for you to get back there eventually and redeem yourself from your last, from your last experience. I'd love to get back to Western States. It's a race that is obviously one of a kind and occupies a special place in my heart and in my memories and in my career, you know, I'm fortunate to have started the race four times and finished three all in the top 10. I was on the podium once, which was one of my best races ever. And, um, I'd love to get back. I feel like I still haven't raced to my potential at the race, which, um, is highly, highly motivating. And so I will get back at some point and, uh, Maybe it's next year. Maybe it's a few more years down the line. But uh, I'm confident next time that I do, I'll not only be super, super motivated, but be much more prepared for the specific demands of the race and manage the heat better and manage my pacing better. And um, yeah, so it's an important race and a race I love and a race I hope I'm fortunate enough to do again. You've lived here in Mill Valley, California, Marin County for five years now. This is home. You occasionally leave to go back to Colorado and train for, you know, mountainous races, as you described earlier. How is living here in a trail running hotbed surrounded by a lot of talent who you'll run with from time to time, but don't necessarily train with every day, supported your own career and motivated you to stay on it when you know, when you otherwise may not have felt like it and kept you, just kept you on your toes, I guess, in general. Yeah, I think it's been invaluable. When Harmony and I moved here, it coincided almost to the week that SFRC opened here in Mill Valley. And I had known Brett and Jorge prior to moving here, but getting to know them and becoming connected with the community around the San Francisco running company immediately upon moving 
uh, to a new place where I wasn't necessarily comfortable was just so, so incredibly important to both Harmony and I. Not only did it connect us with friends immediately and not give us sort of like an awkward transition period where we were trying to meet new new people but it was the first time i'd ever been able to train with with other people when i was living in aspen i ran with a guy named zeke tiernan there a little bit you know maybe a few times a summer otherwise i was on my own all the time and the community that's built around sfrc now is just so incredibly impressive and something that's difficult to adequately describe but you know like as an example prior to utmf i was going to the group run on saturday mornings every saturday i would go out uh, an hour before the group run started so i would start at seven and i would do an hour uh, of some intensity prior to the group run and then Basically, as soon as my workout was over, get back to the running store and we'd go out on the 13 to 15 mile loop that they had uh, designed for the given Saturday. And for me, you know, total runtime would be between two and a half and two hours, 45 minutes. And that's basically up tempo the whole time. So after I got my workout in, I would basically just try and hang on to the front of the train at SFRC. And as you know, that train is often pretty moving pretty seriously fast. And, you know, for me, it's just like, I don't know how else I could ever duplicate that type of a training stimulus. And it's just incredible. Like I, I may be somebody who responds quickly to training, but I feel like if I do that, twice, I'm like as fit as I'm going to get for a race. And so I think there's something to be said for just being able to get your ass kicked by some guys every once in a while. And, um, also just like being motivated by what people are doing, you know, and, uh, just like having a community of people who are interested in the same thing that you are and being able to like take my trophy over to SFRC and put it on the shelves and know that everybody was following and rooting for me. It's like, just so cool it's so cool and it's i can't say enough about how much it's it's sort of helped me and um you know as a result you know we try and support sfrc as much as we can and um yeah i just hope uh they continue to be successful and they continue to to serve the community because it's uh they've done so much already Despite the fact that you're only 32 years old, I'd consider you a wily veteran in the sport of ultra running these days. You've been at it, as you said, for about nine years now. In your eyes, how has the sport evolved over that time? It's pretty remarkable looking back now. Um, and you're right, like I'm 32 now and I remember... I mean, it seems like just yesterday that I was like a 24 year old up and coming kid who's jumping into Leadville. And, um, yeah, it's wild to, to see sort of how things have changed. And, um, for me, I think what's most impressive is how little things have changed. Uh, I think like in the emotional sort of core of the sport and that, it still to me has 
so much to offer just in terms of just pure sportsmanship and good vibes and, you know, clean and fair and good spirited competitiveness. Uh, I think there's a lot of cynical people who would have thought that it would have become more of like a, uh, corporatized sport with cutthroat competitiveness and doping and whatever. And to me, you know, there's, there's probably been an increase in, in all those things, but I think to a negligible degree, and I'm sure there's some people who would argue with me about that, but I, it still feels the same to me, you know, and I've raced around the world and been in the sport a long time now. And I, uh, I love to see it grow. I love to see new brands coming into the space and see athletes be, be able to make a living off it in a lot of cases. Um, and to see like, media members be able to sort of focus a hundred percent on, on trail and ultra running and have it be a viable business, I think is incredibly healthy for, for the sport. Um, and as somebody who travels to race a lot, uh, I think one thing that it really is striking is just how much more mature the sport is elsewhere outside the United States. And, in Europe, I mean, it's a real, real professional sport and the athletes are professional athletes. You know, even if they have side jobs, they all like have, I mean, it seems like most of them will have like nutrition help and physio help and, uh, will get to races early in order to acclimatize and all those things that it takes to be successful. And the event, uh, the events over there are just incredibly professionalized too. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that they're able to have huge fields. And, and I was talking to a guy from the world tour and I think he told me that there's now something like several hundred races in Europe that have a thousand or more runners, which is just incredible. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I don't think it'll ever be the case here which worries me a little bit, you know, because Why do you think that is just because of the land use issues that we deal with. And, um, it, you know, like a race like Western States is never going to be able to have 2,500 right. runners in it. Um, and I think that's going to limit growth in the U S though, you know, most of the serious sponsors are American based companies in a lot of cases. And, Hopefully they'll continue to see, see value in the sport, even if the growth is happening more abroad. Um, but just like seeing how the world tour has grown and seeing how races in Europe operate and, um, you know, it, it's, it's pretty remarkable and it's really cool as somebody who tries to do this on sort of like a semi-professional level, um, to, to have those opportunities, but it's also nice i think to have the very grassroots um you know sort of throwback uh type races as well that um really you know emphasize community over you know large scale events and competitiveness in in your experiences traveling abroad to races and racing here domestically is that something that's 
consistent on a global level, that grassroots kind of local homey feel, or does it feel more, more like that here in the U S and more big time in Europe or how, how would you, how would you classify the two or differentiate them? Yeah. I mean, it definitely feels more big time in Europe, but the, the people who run ultra marathons are universally very similar, you know, and at least in my experience, everybody who I've met, you know, whether I'm racing in Japan or Europe or the U S everybody still has that same vibe of just like supportiveness and we're all in this together. And like, yeah, we're all about to do something that is going to be so hard. And there's a just mutual respect between each competitor. And I don't think that is, is different no matter where you are. You know, I don't find that runners are less friendly in Europe because it's more of a big time racing event. Um, and that I think gives us all, uh, I think reason for optimism for the future of the sport, because I think it attracts people like that. It attracts good people. It attracts, uh, people who aren't necessarily like, in it for accolades and in it for trophies. They're in it for vision quest. (laughs) Does as someone who's competing at the front of a lot of these fields, does something like doping worry you in ultra running? You know, Mario, I'm glad you asked because it, it doesn't really bother me. It, I mean, I think there's, there is supposed to be, or there, there should be some, healthy skepticism and there should be i think ample communication among athletes particularly professional athletes about keeping the sport clean that being said you know some of the things i see online i think are just like toxic to the sport you know and like only foster an environment of skepticism among athletes. You know, I, what's an example of that? Well, you know, like, I don't know. There's certain people who I think are very vocal about anti-doping and they, you know, it comes from a good, a good place, but I think the unintended consequence oftentimes is a perception that the sport is like really dirty and in my experience, I just, or from my perception, I just don't think that's the case. And the reason for that is because I'm still able to compete at, you know, a semi world-class level and I know I'm not doping and I'm very confident the best guys in the world who I've competed against a number of times each aren't doping. And while I'm sure there might be exceptions to that, it in no way I think is rampant. And I think oftentimes when the conversation on the internet takes place, which is obviously not always the best place to have these types of conversations, the unintended perception, I think of the sport or of the problem gets exaggerated, you know, in that people, uh, you know, outside observers might think, oh, ultra running is filled, filled with dopers. And, you know, as much as we can minimize, you know, like the toxic atmosphere of the internet, um, 
I think while while still promoting clean sport and understanding that it's a worthy thing to aspire to, um, I think we can balance that, you know, and, you know, oftentimes I think some of the conversation is counterproductive, not in that it encourages people to dope, but that it encourages people to think that people are doping when they aren't. And, uh, I mean, to me, I think there's nothing more poisonous to like the dialogue or to the sport in general than people being super suspicious with no evidence or no reason for, for such a feeling. Well, because then all the chatter is negative, no matter how you slice it. Right. Exactly. And in a sport where the, what makes it so special is, you know, community and positivity. Um, I think it does have negative consequences. What excites you about the sport of ultra running right now and moving forward? Uh, I mean, lots of things. I think one thing is the level of women's racing, I think, has taken a noticeable uh, improvement in recent years. And I think um, Western States this year is going to be the best, potentially the best women's race we've ever seen or potentially the best women's field we've ever seen. Um, and I think that's really exciting, you know, seeing the women's, uh, race potentially, you know, look like the men's and that you might have packs of women running together through the canyons, uh, which is often, often happens in the men's race. Uh, I think that, that really excites me and, and seeing more young people coming into the sport, um, who aren't necessarily motivated by rotor track racing or who m- m- may not have that shorter distance type talent, but are motivated to do mountain type racing. I think we'll continue to see a lot more of that. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think just new races around the world, like there's just so many cool things, um, and so many cool new races that pop up and new routes, new FKTs and, uh, the sport just has an, an, an enormous like lifestyle appeal, I think. And once people, you know, potentially from other sports see that, I think it'll continue to grow and, um, you know, we'll, we'll kind of see the light and continue to, uh, you know, grow the sport, but in a healthy way. Awesome. I think that's a great place to put a pin in it. Thanks again for having me over to your house to have a great conversation with you. And thanks to all of you out there who are listening to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Really appreciate it. If you can go to iTunes or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts and leave a rating and a review, uh, that helps the show out a lot. And finally, if you would like to support the Morning Shakeout, you can do so on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the morning shakeout. Until next time, I'm Mario Fraley, and thank you for listening to my podcast.